this is Penny Johnson, and you're listening to From Stage to Page, an audiobook podcast devoted to the forgotten stories and memoirs of female performing artists from the late 19th and early 20th centuries. In this episode, we continue with My Life and Dancing, written by Maud Allen and published in 1908 by Paul R. Reynolds. Chapter 11 London I cannot say that my first impression of the city was the happiest of any I had ever had, although I was coming into an undiscovered country of which I had dreamed and which I longed to conquer. The crossing of the channel was almost more than I could bear. At no time on the great ocean had I ever suffered as I did then. And then, too, the day was Sunday, and it was so wet, for the rain was coming down in torrents. As we drove from the station, I saw looming up against the dark sky a huge building, Buckingham Palace, where the king lives, I whispered, and I felt a thrill as if I were at home, for I certainly had one friend in this great city of rain and darkness. When I was at the high school in California, I first read that beautiful poem beginning, Oh, to be in England, now that April's there. And ever since, when studying music under Ferruccio Busoni, or when wandering in the picture galleries and churches of Italy, I have had the same aspirations as Browning. And here am I in England, already seven whole months. April has come and gone, and still I wonder what I think of it. The stillness in London, as compared to other big cities, is very restful. You must not think that I mean by this that London is slow and sleepy. Quite the reverse. Berlin is up all night. In Vienna, the cafes have not shut their doors for years. In New York, the crowds of people all seem to be making unnecessary noise. As compared with these, London is alive, a delightful fair, full of merry-go-rounds, without the steam organ. But can anyone tell me why the streets are made as smooth as the floors of ballrooms for the horses, and every stone in your pavements in the West End is constructed like a small basin? And the people! It would be against my nature not to love the fine, gallant, well-dressed, straightforward Englishmen. But the women I may be supposed to look on with a critical, cat-like eye. To me, they are the most wonderful feature of lovely London. Never have I seen so many, except in San Francisco, as adorn the streets of the West End, a huge aviary, all in brilliant plumage and all young, looking for all the world like a pretty chorus, with bright eyes, rosebud mouths, and pink complexions set in a frame of fluffy hair. Mothers and daughters of the great and the work girls, non-angli, said Angeli, not angles, but angels, as the Roman emperor said. They are all the same. Nowhere in the world does a woman of birth carry herself so distinctively as in England. 
and your Sundays. I have seen your day of rest sneered at. I have heard the continental Sunday lauded. I have lived long enough on the continent, however, to see this one day cruelly abused and appreciate deeply the quiet and peace of an English Sunday. I have not seen much of England yet. I was too ill on coming and was as white as your chalk cliffs and therefore could hardly appreciate my run through the garden of England. I must go again to see the hop poles tied up with green ribbons and your blossomed pear tree in the hedge lean to the field and scatter on the clover blossoms and dewdrops. But I have seen enough to love your peaceful Sunday and its evening bells. When I came to London, I was known only to a few Londoners who perhaps had seen me on the continent or heard of me when I danced before His Majesty at Marienbad. I felt as though I were about to turn a sharp corner in my career, one which meant so much to me, to my art and to its future. Would I be received? Would my efforts meet with approval, English approval? If I live to be the age of Methuselah, I shall never forget my first performance on March 6, 1908 at the Palace Theatre. Never before had I been so tempted to gaze for one satisfying moment at my audience. It meant so much for the press to speak for my art, born of my great passionate love for the beautiful. But perhaps it was nervousness. Perhaps the silent house sitting in darkness. At any rate, I couldn't tell whether there were twenty people or two hundred there. Then, in a desire to forget, I placed my mind on my work, and slipping from behind the softly hanging curtains which formed my background, danced my way into the heart of London. I was so happy, and now the golden gates of all the cities of the earth are open to me. I say this in very humble and in deep gratitude, and because I owe it to you, dear Londoners, I would be unworthy if I did not make acknowledgment. To Mr. Alfred Butt, Managing Director of the Palace, I owe the greatest debt of thanks for his full realization of the value of a judicious management of an artiste with an art so foreign to anything yet brought to the notice of the English public has proven of infinite value to me, and I shall ever be grateful and deeply indebted to him. Speaking of Mr. Butt, I may as well tell you how I once hurt his feelings almost beyond redemption. When I called at the palace on the day after my arrival, at twelve o'clock, with sack and pack, as the Germans say, I asked of Blake, the stage doorkeeper, to be shown to Mr. Butt, the managing director. Blake seemed to think I wanted a lot. Mr. Butt is engaged, miss. Can't see him. So, I thought, a pretty time of day if I'm to wait in the hallway till dear knows when so I conceived the idea of assisting upon my card being sent up. A telephone message. Go up to the office, miss. I'll take you up in the lift. Mr. Butt will see you soon. I got as far as the top, and a clatter of typewriting machines told me I was nearing busy offices. Again, you'll have to wait a while, miss. So down I sat on a bench in the hall and waited. Waited. Suddenly a door opened. A voice called, Miss Allen? 
I jumped. I had fallen into a reverie and was away off in fairyland. When I entered, a tall, slight, fair-haired young man stood before me. I gazed a few seconds, perplexed, looked about me as he made no move to go, and called Mr. Butt to see if I had perhaps overlooked the director. "'Will you kindly call Mr. Butt?' I remarked. "'Who? Mr. Butt?' His clear blue eyes twinkled, and his whole face lighted up with a smile so wicked that I felt for one moment horribly annoyed. How dare this man act in such a manner? Suddenly I felt I was making a mistake. This man could be none other than Mr. Butt himself. I gasped out my suspicion, and yes, it was true. I had thought him one of his clerks. Can you imagine his amusement? But how could I know he would be so young? He did forgive me, and soon, too, and now I count him as my true friend and the palace theatre in which I have spent many happy months and won the sympathetic applause of thousands, my London home. England's Queen I used to think when I was a student that if I could dance before and receive the gracious applause of the king and queen, I should be the happiest girl in the world. And now that it has really happened, I think sometimes it must all be a dream. How plainly it all comes back to me! How clearly I seem to hear Her Majesty's voice as, taking hold of my hand, she said, How beautiful your dancing is! It has given me real delight. It all happened one night after my usual appearance at the theatre. It was after a dinner given in honour of Their Majesties by the Earl and Countess of Dudley. Their beautiful ballroom, in its white and gold splendor, was radiant with beautiful women and sparkling gems. One end had been reserved for me, and with a background of masses of smilax and La France roses, I felt as though I had been transported to fairyland. I looked with quivering heart and tears in my eyes at all the wondrous beauty of my surroundings, and calling upon the fairies to support and guide me, danced as I have never danced before. When I had finished, I saw the king and queen applauding. I grew dizzy with joy, and I could have kissed the hem of her garment. When Lady Dudley came to me with a message that the queen would receive me, London held at that moment no happier girl. England's queen, ever young, ever charitable, had recognized my efforts to give something beautiful to the world and I was now to hear it from her own dear lips. I have heard it and rejoice. <laughs>